Well, if you can take your Bibles and <clears throat> turn with me to the, the passage of Scripture I read just a little bit earlier. It's the book of Haggai, Haggai chapter 2. I think I had said last time I had preached that um, when we covered Haggai chapter 1, my intention was, uh, the next time I preached, was to cover Haggai chapter 2, and I didn't quite make it there, so I didn't quite uh, get all the way through chapter 2, so perhaps in in a little while at some point uh, we'll be able to conclude uh, the book of Haggai. But this evening we're going to look at the first nine verses of Haggai chapter 2. And it would be helpful to have a reminder of what we considered last time in Haggai chapter 1. You will remember that um, Israel has returned from captivity in Babylon. And you will remember that in fulfillment to the prophecy that was given in Isaiah, that God would raise up Cyrus, Cyrus who was the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, and he sent Israel back to Palestine, back to rebuild the temple. And with this announcement from the king, this declaration from the king, there was just a small little group, just a small little remnant of Israelites that were in captivity in Babylon, about 40 or 50,000 that returned to Jerusalem and returned to rebuild the temple. And they started out well when they returned. They got to the land, they offered their sacrifices, they laid the foundation of the temple, and then it all stopped. And God's temple lay in ruins for for over a decade. See, what had happened was, even though the people had started well, their priorities had changed. And it wasn't God's kingdom that they were seeking first, but it was their own priorities and their own interests. God sent them warnings, and we looked at that last time. He sent them drought, he sent them poor harvests, but that still didn't awaken Israel from their lethargy, from their spiritual declension. And so the Lord sent Haggai, this obscure prophet that we don't know a lot about, to come and to rebuke Israel, to call them back, to rebuild the temple, and to awaken them from their ways. And we saw last time as well that Israel responded to that call. They came in repentance. They came and they committed themselves again to the rebuilding of the temple. And what a wonderful, wonderful a reminder that was of God's people submitting to his word, repenting and continuing on in the work of the kingdom. Well, that was what we considered last time in Haggai chapter 1. And now we continue on in the rebuilding of the temple and in Haggai chapter 2. And we can see that at the beginning there that It's been a little bit under a month since the work of the rebuilding of the temple started. You can see in verse 15 of chapter 1, where it says that 
oh, just a little bit before, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, and the second year of Darius the king. So that's when they started again. And then we can see at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 2, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. So it's been a little less than a month since the people started again and started rebuilding the temple. And what we see is, we see firstly that it's a discouraged people. It's a discouraged people. Here they are being stirred, starting out again, and so soon they are discouraged in the work. What's interesting in terms of this day that the word of the Lord comes by the hand of Haggai, this actually is a a special day in, in Israel. And we can turn back, if you want to turn back with me, to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 33. Um, Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 33. And we we see, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, And for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord, or the Feasts of Tabernacle. When the Lord comes by, when the word word of the Lord comes by the hand of Haggai, it's during the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Perhaps you forget what was the importance of that feast. Well, one of the key things with that feast was it was a celebration of the harvest. What's happening with this little remnant right now? They're dealing with a meager harvest, aren't they? Perhaps not a lot to to celebrate about. But we see it's not just the meager harvest that has discouraged them. There's something else that has discouraged them as well. And we see this through the series of three questions that come from Haggai to the people. These questions that are very penetrating and They get to the heart of the matter. Remember we saw that last time as well, how Haggai started out his first sermon at the very beginning? There were penetrating questions that just got to the heart of the matter of what was the problem in Israel. And so we see these three questions that come in in chapter uh, chapter 2 and verse 3. The first question, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? You see, there were some in Jerusalem that remember Solomon's temple. They remember the magnificence of Solomon's temple, the splendor, how wonderful it looked. Then the second question in verse 3 as well, how do you see it now? How does this temple, that this little remnant, is building. How does that compare to Solomon's temple? And well, the third question really tells how it compares from this outward perspective and what Israel was thinking. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? There was nothing. This remnant was building um, this temple, and it was as nothing compared to Solomon's temple. Now, this isn't the first time that Israel was well aware of 
their feeble efforts in, in building this temple after coming back from the Babylonian captivity. In fact, when the remnant first came, if you turn with me to Ezra chapter 3, they first come, they lay the foundation, there's some celebration, but yet we also see in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 12 these words, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Even when that foundation was laid, the people knew that it was lacking in comparison to Solomon. And how could they build in comparison to Solomon? You think about all the resources that were at Solomon's um, hands. For example, if you want to turn with me back to 1 Kings chapter 5, when we hear about the preparations for building the temple under the reign of Solomon, you remember how many people are a part of this remnant right now under Zerubbabel and under Joshua? About 40 to 50,000. Well, let's consider Solomon's workforce in 1 Kings chapter 5. Verse 13, King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men. 30,000 men he drafted. And then if you just quickly go down to verse 15, Solomon, in addition to these 30,000 men, Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hill, besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work. It's quite a workforce, isn't it? Especially in comparison to this little remnant. What could they do in comparison to Solomon? Or what about Solomon's resources? Not just the the workforce, but his other resources. And if you just look back a couple of verses, we get a, a little bit of a sense of what Solomon's just paying in order to have timber for the temple that he built. And you can see this in verse 11, where... Uh, uh, Hiram, the king of Tyre, is supplying Solomon with timber and cedar in order to build the temple. In verse 11, Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores, or about 125,000 bushels of wheat as food for his household, and 20,000 cores of beaten oil, which I think is like over a million, a million gallons. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. So this is just for the timber to build the temple, let alone all the other wonderful things and furnishings and um, gold and silver and all manner of things that you can read about if we continued on in uh, 1 Kings chapter 6 and 1 Kings chapter 7. What could this little group do with their feeble efforts in comparison to Solomon? And so they were discouraged. They were discouraged in in their work. This was a discouraged people. Well, we can, I'm sure, similarly relate at times, can't we, to the Israelites here as we labor in the Lord's work. We can be discouraged in our labors for God's kingdom just as Israel was. Perhaps we can be discouraged with our church. Why do we have to rent and 
Why don't we own a place? Perhaps that can be a source of discouragement. Or why are there churches with thousands, but we have under a hundred? Or perhaps we can be discouraged with the state of the church in our country. Why, why is it that Christians only have an hour to devote to the worship of God on a weekly basis? It could be a source of discouragement. Or why is it that even the biggest churches in Canada attract thousands, but we have Scotiabank Arena there that can fill a 20,000 stadium for every Maple Leaf game? Why is it that musicians can come to Toronto and pack out stadiums and there's empty pews in our churches across Canada? I don't know why I looked this up, but did you know that um, Taylor Swift in one of her tours had 3 million attendees attend during her tours, generated 350 million of revenue. Over what? Over what? Or perhaps we can be discouraged with the influence of Christianity that seems to be moving from away from Canada. We may remember a time when Stores were closed on Sunday. We may remember a time when shameful things were kept in the dark. They weren't openly flaunted and celebrated. We may remember a time when there was a respect for God's word. But yet we see Christianity marginalized and more and more despised in Canada. And we can be a discouraged people as well as we labor for the Lord and for his kingdom in this place. Well, a discouraged people. Well, in their discouragement, this word comes from God through Haggai. And we see that in verse 4, where it's, Be strong. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people, declares the Lord, and work. Now, I remember back in uh, in high school, I played uh, a year of uh, of football. And, uh, you know, when you have a physical sport like that, you're going to have some uh, bumps and, and bruises and cuts and, unfortunately, concussions as well. And I still remember my, uh, my coach's way of dealing with that. You got a little bump, or you got a little cut, or you got a little bruise, or unfortunately back then as well, you got a little concussion. Slap some mud on it, and get out there, was the response. And I see a smirk from one of my children there. They may have heard that in jest from me in, in the past. Uh, slap some mud on it and, and get out there. Or you know, maybe the more sophisticated way of saying it is stiff upper lip. Right? Stiff upper lip. That's not the way that the Lord is coming to encourage his people here. He's not coming to Israel and saying, slap some mud on it and get out there. Stiff upper lip. You notice what his encouragement is? In verse 4, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. You notice that repetition as well through these verses here as well, again and again, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. Work, 
for I am with you. Even as he promised, even as his covenant said that he would be with his people. This is why he brought them out of Egypt. If you turn with me to Exodus chapter 29 and verse 46. Exodus chapter 29 and verse 46. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. That was the Lord's purpose in redeeming Israel out of Egypt to be with them, to dwell with them. See, the Lord has kept his covenant with Israel, even when they were in Babylon. Why were they brought out of Babylon? Why is this remnant now here, back in Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple? It's because of God's covenant. It's because that God was with them. That's why they're back. God is fulfilling his covenant. This isn't the first time that they've heard this message from God through Haggai. I am with you. They heard this in the last sermon that Haggai gave a number of months ago. And we can see that in chapter 1 and verse 13. Where again, the Lord says, I am with you, declares the Lord. And you remember that these are the words that came from the Lord after the people had repented, after they had submitted to God's word. And they hear, I am with you. And it had such a stirring, a stirring to them, didn't it? It stirred them up. It made them zealous to get back into the work. But here again, just a short time after, and they are discouraged. They've forgotten, haven't they, that the Lord is with them. The Lord is there to help them. And I suppose very much in the same way we can relate to Israel, can't we? So often, we are too soon to forget the truths, aren't we? Too soon to forget God's promises. Too soon to forget that the Lord our God is with us. Sometimes, in fact, we can hear a message again and again, and we can take it the wrong way as well. I remember when I was a younger man, um, being in a, in a part of a conversation, and, and one of the individuals had complained about uh, their, their pastor's sermon. And, and the complaint was, well, I just I keep hearing the same thing. You know, read your Bible, pray, love one another, make disciples. And, of course, the assumption was that the problem was with the pastor, not that the Lord was bringing something to that person's heart that they would do well to listen to. Well, we want to make sure that we aren't like those when... The Lord brings again the same message to us because we need to hear it again and again, don't we? Because we are too soon to forget. We are too soon to to be discouraged in our work. Well, praise be to the Lord our God that he is so ever patient with us and that he deals with us as his beloved children. And when we are discouraged, he again reminds us through his word of his covenant with us that he is with us. And so, similar application to what I had said last time when we thought about this in terms of he is with us. As we're laboring up there in prayer, as we're going forth from this place and we're witnessing to unbelievers, the Lord is with you, brothers and sisters. And let's take that to heart to remember 
to cause us to be strong and to work for the Lord our God is with us. Well, God encourages with the promise of his presence. Well, God also encourages as well with the promise of future blessing. That's what we see in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, the promise of future blessing. And there's really three key things that we'll think about in these three verses here. We'll think about shaking. We're going to think about um, the treasures of the nations. And we're going to think about the greater glory as well as we think about how the Lord encourages his people with future blessing. Well, the, the shaking. Well, perhaps you remember uh, another event when there was shaking in the history of, of Israel. And you can turn with me back to the book of Exodus again. Exodus chapter 19 and, and verse 18, where we find Israel... They're at the foot of Mount Sinai, and we find these words where it says, Mount, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Well, that was a time when the Lord shook the earth. But you'll notice here, where the Lord says again, he will shake the heavens, he will shake the earth, he will shake the sea, he will shake the dry land. This will be a complete shaking of the entire created order and all the nations will be impacted from this shaking. Well, this shaking is a reference to God's judgment. That's what it's a reference to, the judgment that God brings on on the nations. Well, when was the time of this shaking? Was this fulfilled in Zerubbabel's time? Well, maybe to a certain extent. If we think about the empire that was reigning at that time, the Medo-Persian Empire, they were eventually shaken. They were eventually toppled. And there was another empire that came in its place. Greece, similar, shaken, toppled. Then the Roman Empire, similar, and continues on and on and on. And I think we probably know that ultimately what this is pointing to in its fulfillment is the complete judgment on the nations that comes upon them when Christ returns. In fact, we um, this verse is picked up in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. This is picked up, uh, I believe this is the only uh, verse uh, of Haggai that's quoted in, in the New Testament. Um, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 26, where it says, At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. And this is where uh, the writer of Hebrews is quoting from Haggai. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Well, you see what the writer of the Hebrews reminds us of, even as it talks about God's judgment on the nations, God's shaking of the nations. It's a reminder that there is a kingdom that can't be shaken. There is a kingdom that's permanent. And it's for those that are found in Christ. It's Christ's kingdom. What a good reminder, especially in our day and age as well, to, again, be laser-focused on the priorities of that kingdom and no other kingdom as well. All other kingdoms are secondary. See, it's the kingdom of God and of His Christ that will endure. It's the kingdom of God and of His Christ that will not be shaken. All the other nations will be shaken. doesn't matter how Christianized they are, they will all be shaken because there's going to be one kingdom that's going to endure. So even our beloved land as well, Canada, it's going to be shaken. We do love Canada. We know that there's many benefits, but it's going to be a nation that's shaken as well because there's only going to be one kingdom that remains, and that's the kingdom of our God and of our Christ. What a reminder for us as well as we labor to ensure that our priorities are primarily for that kingdom that cannot be shaken that kingdom, the greater kingdom, the greater kingdom that, owe, that, that we owe our greatest allegiance to, the kingdom of our God and of our Christ. Well, additionally as well, one of the other applications from this is a reminder of the coming judgment of God. And we need to warn. As ambassadors of that kingdom, we need to warn. We need to warn that there is a coming judgment, that there is a shaking, a complete shaking, a fulfillment of that shaking that's coming at Christ's return. And now is the time for sinners to flee. Now is the time to kiss the Son and take refuge in Him now. And that's what we need to do as faithful ambassadors of this kingdom, to go forth and to warn of the coming judgment, to flee to the Lamb. Today is the day of salvation. Well, that's the shaking. Well, secondly, the treasures of the nations that will fill the temple with glory. The the the, the commentators that I were I was uh, commentaries that I was I was looking at for this. They said that um, verse seven. Uh, is uh, the most difficult verse in uh, this book uh, to deal with, in the book of Haggai to deal with. And uh, um, it's probably not as difficult as uh, some passages of Scripture, like perhaps certain verses in Jude, right, brother? (laughs) Uh, Certain verses in Jude are probably a little bit more difficult to to deal with. But in terms of uh, with this passage, I think it comes down to what's... What's the focus here? What, what is meant by the, the treasures of all the nations? And I think you can really see uh, the ESV, uh, the translators of the ESV are indicating what they think that the correct interpretation is of this. But there's some other translations that they would, they would um, uh, kind of indicate the other way that this can be taken. And uh, the King James Version in particular 
um, uh, phrases it this way. Uh, and I will shake the nations. So this is Haggai chapter 2 and verse 7. I will shake the nations and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. So perhaps as you're sitting there and you kind of hear this translation, uh, something that's coming into your mind right now is that beloved Christmas carol that we have. Come thou long expected Jesus born to set thy people free. From our hopes and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel, strength and consolation. Hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation. Joy of every longing heart. So you can see that Obviously, the, the writer of that, that carol had felt that um, um, what's in, in mind here in terms of interpreting this passage of what the treasures of all the nations are, that's, that's talking, talking about Christ. Um, I, I don't think that there in terms of the treasures of the nations is particularly referencing in Christ. We, we will get to Christ because... Uh, ultimately, that's really what the greater glory that we're going to talk about is in this passage. Um, but I, I, I don't think that. I, I think that it is as is translated here in, in the ESV, and you can take that as, as you know, I'm, I'm not a, a Hebrew expert or anything like that, but that's the way that I'm going to present it to you anyway. It's, it's what's in mind here is it's it's the treasures of the nations, isn't it? And, and you can almost see the picture that's taken place in verse 6 and verse 7 here as well. There's this shaking that's taking place. And there's this toppling of all the nations. And, you know, one of the things that I was picturing in my mind is, you know, you can think about children, how they can make their towers out of blocks. And if you just knock the table a little bit, what happens? Well, it all just kind of comes collapsing and so as the Lord shakes all the nations and as they all collapse and as they all topple all their wealth all the gold all the silver all that's desired goes into the temple and fills that temple with with glory and I think that's the picture that's taken here and so then the question is what's in mind here did this happen with this tiny remnant in terms of all the gold and the silver of all the nations ended up filling the, the temple and there was greater glory than Solomon? Well, no, not really. I mean, to a certain extent that there was some fulfillment of this. I mean, we can go back to Ezra or we, we can look at Ezra in a couple places with Cyrus and, and Darius. And what do we find? Well, they actually sent some gold and silver along with the remnant. So in a certain way, yes. There was some of the treasures of the nation that was filling this temple. But it's not the fulfillment. That's not the main thing that's in mind here as Haggai gives this prophecy. And what, re- what really is in mind is what we find elsewhere in the Old Testament. And particularly in Isaiah chapter 60. If you want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 60, I think we really see what is the fulfillment of this in terms of the treasures of the nations coming in and filling this house with glory. And Isaiah chapter 60, it's very similarly, it's looking about the future glory of Israel. And you can see in verse 1 there, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come 
to your light and kings to your brightness of your rising. Or if you go down to verse 16, verse 6 rather, a multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Keter shall be gathered to you. The rams of um, Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Well, what's going on there in Isaiah chapter 60? And I think what really is in mind here with the treasures of the nations And the filling of this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. I think really what we see here is we really see God's plan. That's of the church, isn't it? It's all the nations coming. See, it wasn't just going to be Israel. It wasn't just going to be the remnant. That wasn't what was going to fill this place with glory. It wasn't that the church was plan B and, and because... Things with Israel didn't work out. No, that was God's plan all along, to draw in all the nations from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and to fill this house with glory. And that's the glory, I think, that's being talked about here. It's the glory of Christ's church. It is a derived glory, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, but it is still glory as well. What an amazing thing for us, to be laboring in this day when we see it. See, Israel would not have seen that very clearly in their day as they're laboring about this this treasures of the nations coming in and filling this house with glory. But we see it. We see the plan of God. We see God calling from all tongues, tribes, and nations the glory of Christ, um, his church. What a reminder how we ought to see the church as well. Does the church have its problems? Yes, church obviously has its problems. We're part of that church as well, and we have problems. We can't distance ourselves from it. Does the church as well have sins that need to be repented of? Well, yes, that's true. But yet, how people within the church and without the church can despise and look so poorly on the church is such a sad thing when we see a passage like this of what God's intention is. God's intention, the glory of the church. And we think about even in terms of a passage like Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 and verse 21. And this benediction where, you know, reminded now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Well, that's the treasures of all the nations coming in and filling this house with glory. It's God's plan for the church. And how we are so thankful for God's plan for the church, aren't we? Because we are a part of God's people because of this. Well, the treasures of all nations come in. Well, thirdly, Verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory. What is the greater glory of this temple? Well, we can learn from history that, you know, this temple was quite small to begin with, and 
over time and over the centuries it was added on to and eventually when Herod comes on the scene he put a lot of resources into it and in Jesus's day it did look quite magnificent not quite as magnificent as Solomon's temple but it still did look uh, magnificent and you can uh, perhaps remember this from um, the disciples pointing this out to to Jesus in uh, Mark chapter 13 where the disciples say look teacher what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings but this wasn't the greater glory of this temple you notice what Jesus says there do you see these great buildings there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down but we know what this greater glory is this greater glory is found in the person of Christ so that the word became flesh and dwelt among us see in the Old Testament we are reminded of the temple being filled with the Shekinah glory and perhaps you know what that means in terms of the Shekinah glory that's that cloud that manifested the presence of God's glory and you know you can find that in a passage such as um, uh, early in Exodus or again um, just picking up Solomon's temple as well in 2nd Chronicles chapter 7 2nd Chronicles chapter 7 um, after Solomon's prayer as soon as Solomon finished his prayer fire came down from heaven consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple that um, cloud that Shekinah glory but we find in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is all the fullness of the deity dwells bodily think about that that's quite astounding isn't it we're soon going to be coming up to um, a reminder of the incarnation in the Christmas season and that God would come in human flesh the word became flesh and dwelt among us and there we see all the fullness of the deity dwelling bodily on the child that's being presented in the temple in Luke chapter 2 and the 12 year old child that's sitting with the leaders and the teachers and listening and asking questions and teaching them and the man that preaches and teaches in the temple that was such glory as that temple had never seen that was such glory as Solomon's temple had never seen but yet we need to go further than that because you see Christ replaces the temple remembers Jesus's words in John chapter 2 and verse 19 where he says destroy this temple so this temple that the people here are building and that Herod adds on to destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days but he wasn't really talking about the temple was he He wasn't talking about the physical there because we know what happened to that temple 70 AD the Romans demolished it not one stone was left standing on itself but we understand from John chapter 2 that Jesus was talking about himself Jesus was talking about himself he was the temple he was the one that would be destroyed on the cross 
but he would be raised from the dead because the temple was pointing to Christ because it's through Christ that God can be reconciled to sinners, sinners can be reconciled to God, that there can be peace and that God can dwell with his people forever. That peace that's being talked about there in verse 9, I will give peace. Solomon's temple didn't see that. This little temple didn't see that as well. But we see that through the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who took upon himself human flesh, made atonement for his people, reconciled us to God and God to us, such that God can dwell with us, his people, forever. Well, that's glory that nothing can compare to. Nothing in this life can compare to it in the person of Christ our Lord. Well, God encourages his people with his presence. God encourages his people with the promise of blessing and the promise of his son and so us tonight as well are you discouraged are you discouraged in your labors in the lord well we need again to look with eyes afresh to the lord jesus christ we need to look with eyes afresh to that greater glory see we we see that greater glory don't we eyes of faith right now we see it with eyes of faith But we know that there is a day when we will see Christ with our own eyes, won't we? And we'll see that ransomed church all around. And we will be like Christ as well, won't we? What a wonderful thing. What an encouragement for us as well here, even if we are discouraged, to be strong and to work. For the Lord is with us and there is a greater glory to come. Well, one final word to to anyone who is not in this kingdom, anyone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever kingdom you're serving, it, it won't last. Whatever glory you think that you have from your kingdom, it's it's fading. It's nothing in comparison to Christ. It's small, it's insignificant compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are in need of a Savior. You need to flee from the wrath to come. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ this day and be saved to eternal life. And you will behold greater glory than you have ever seen and that you can ever imagine. Well, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, what um, truths we find contained in your words, Lord. There are words at times we, we stumble and to think about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how beautiful he is and how wonderful he is. And right now we see him with eyes of faith, but... There will be a day when we will see him with our very own eyes and we shall be like him. Oh, Father, help us to labor. Oh, Father, if we are discouraged as we come before your word now, oh, encourage us. 
We, are, we know that you are with us. You are to help us. We know that we are to be strong and we are to work for you. Oh, Father, encourage us with your presence. Remind us again of the blessings, the future glory. Again, that glory we see with eyes of faith, but one day we will behold with our very own eyes. Oh, Father, use us for your kingdom. Make us more faithful servants. Praying these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.